0: Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. And I'm John Fensterwald, Editor-at-Large at at EdSource. Welcome, John. Thank you, Lewis. Well, it's that time of the year. The governor's race is heating up. And this week was a particularly hot one when the Charter School Association advocates endorsed former Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villarugosa in his bid to become governor. That's right. At the same time, leveled very sharp criticism at Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, who, as you know, is the front runner at the moment. We'll also discuss some good news for California school districts and child care in the federal budget that Congress has passed that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. And you'll be talking about how the state promises to deal with one factor contributing to the achievement gap, the higher rates of inexperienced and ineffective teachers in low-income minority schools. And then we'll try to get our reporter Teresa Harrington into the studio to talk about another equity issue, this one in West Contra Costa Unified School District, that's the district which includes Richmond. There's a push there to give voters a chance to elect their school board members in district elections rather than at large. So first in the endorsement of the California Charter Schools Association's advocates, that's the advocacy and lobbying arm of the Charter Schools Association. Well they had their big annual conference in San Diego and not surprisingly the Charter Schools Association endorsed former Mayor Villaraigosa. They were quite close to him, he's been a very strong supporter of charter schools. And just to clarify, the Charter School Association is very insistent that it's not actually the association, but they're lobbying arm, the 501c4 organization that made the endorsements. And so it wasn't surprising that Vera got the nod from Charter School Advocates but what was surprising was that it came with a very very harsh criticism of Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom. They were suggesting that he was against charter schools. That
1: was a surprise. It was a very strong criticism.
0: And part of the I think part of what was what is going on there is that Lieutenant Governor Newsom has gotten the endorsement of the California Teachers Association which has, in recent years, been mounting a very, very strong campaign, not against charter schools, but insisting on more transparency and more oversight of charter schools. Yeah,
1: well, what they said was he's in favor of a moratorium on charter schools. And, you know, in, in what you've heard previously in other appearances, he hadn't
0: stated it that way. Hasn't actually, he himself has not stated it publicly publicly. There's an article in the Sacramento Bee in which his spokesperson indicated that he had signed some kind of pledge to the teachers union saying that he would be against further expansion unless there was more oversight. Yeah. that hasn't actually been confirmed and Newsom himself hasn't said that directly.
1: Yeah I believe it's it's the, his answers to the CTA questionnaire and I think he should release that questionnaire and then we'd know more and I think that uh, what the charter school folks are saying is that uh, by saying the question was apparently according to the B, do you favor any more charter schools at this point and he said no and so his spokesman came out and said well what we're saying is we don't want any more charter schools until there's more transparency more information and financial disclosure and and abide by the open meetings law and Public Records Act and the like and you know mixing the two and so it's really unclear what exactly was said but we need to know
0: well what happened subsequently after the endorsement we did hear from the campaign and they say no, Newsom is in favor of innovative and transparent charter schools. He has been supportive of charter schools in the past.
1: Well, I think we're looking at tea leaves as to what happens after Governor Brown leaves. He's been fully a supporter of charter schools, would veto legislation that, that encroached on the charter school law. And so now there are bills to calling for moratorium. There are bills saying that you need to use the fiscal impact on a district before you approve a charter school, that's a major change in the law. This is what the that charter... would
0: be, it hasn't been passed yet. Right? No, it hasn't,
1: and I think that that's what charter school f- folks are worried about, what happens after Governor Brown leaves, so they want to clarify all these issues ahead of time.
0: Well, I think there's a lot of anxiety in the charter school ranks at the moment, because the rate of growth in charter schools has been declining rather dramatically the last few years. Charter school organizations are feeling that they're getting more resistance from school districts in approving new charters. They see that the stakes are pretty high in terms of who wins, who becomes the next governor. The fact is, right now, Viragosa is actually in the latest polls, is running third. So that means that he wouldn't even be in the runoff next November. So I I imagine the strategy here of the Charter Association and their supporters and other people who don't want Newsom to be elected but are still in the Democratic front, that the push now is to try to get Viragosa to the number two spot in the primary so that he then would be able to run against Newsom in November.
1: Yeah, this could be a signal to charter school backers by the charter school's folks saying, Annie, up your money now. We have two months before the election and you need to pour some money in to make sure Villaraigosa gets in that November election.
0: Not only money. One of the things that Jed Wallace, the president of the association, but he says, talking in his capacity as board member of the advocacy arm of the organization, He is really calling on every parent. In fact, he called it call per kid, 630,000 kids, 630,000 parents, maybe multiplied by two, at least some factor thereof, to make calls on behalf of Villaraigosa in the next couple of months. Only 70 days until the June primary.
1: You're right. CTA gets its members out, and this is a call for charter school folks and parents to be active as well
0: and of course for viaragosa this is a big win because again not that it's a huge surprise that he's getting their backing no but uh if the past is prologue that uh, there's going to be a lot of money coming into his campaign from charter school advocates
1: yes so it makes this a very interesting campaign at least as far as k-12 is concerned over the next two months
0: Well, we've now been joined by Teresa Harrington, our reporter who's been covering Oakland Unified and West Contra Costa Unified. West Contra Costa is in Contra Costa County. It includes Richmond and a number of other towns, communities in the area. There's a lawsuit that wants to pressure the district to switch from at-large school board elections. There's five school board members to what we know as district elections. I think the technical term is trustee area elections, but basically district elections. And it looks like the school board is taking this seriously.
2: The school board has to take it seriously because it's based on the California Voting Rights Act of 2001. And when they first got the letter, they had 45 days to respond. And they actually didn't take action within that 45 days, which is why the lawsuit was filed. So there's actually two parallel things going on right now. There's the board process and there's the court process. Um, According to the board process, they want to put this before the voters in November. The lawsuit is seeking to expedite the process and and have them go get a state waiver from the board so that they could just go straight to the trustee area or district elections in November, because there's three board members up for election in 2018, um, and the people that are pushing for this want this to be enacted this year.
0: So three out of the five board members are from El Cerrito, and they're all white. Correct. And the other two board members?
2: One is Latina and one is African-American, and they are both from Richmond. Um, But then, as you said, there are a lot of other communities that are not represented at all. Um, The district includes a lot of African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians, as well as white voters.
0: Explain this to me. This is not the only district where this issue has come up.
2: Right. This has been a big issue throughout the state, not only for school districts, but also for city councils. And in Contra Costa County, in fact, there are some uh, issues pending right now in other cities as well, and also school districts. Um,
0: And it's thought to be that there are about 100 school districts that have actually switched from at-large elections to district elections since... California passed something called the California Voting Rights Act in 2001, so the last 15, 16 years.
2: Correct, yeah. Basically the people who bring these actions just have to allege that there's been what they call racially polarized voting and the people that brought this action did a lot of research where they looked at past elections and showed that a majority of the school board members over the history of the district have been white and have been from El Cerrito.
0: But does this mean that this intentional kind of racism it seems kind of strange at the school district somebody just files a lawsuit and they're like okay we'll we'll switch i mean that's a big deal to switch from at-large to district elections.
2: Right. But based on precedent, you don't actually have to prove it exactly. You just have to show that it's possible, that it's happening. And the courts have ruled in favor of the plaintiffs in these cases, where cities have tried to challenge it or districts have tried to challenge it. And the thing is, when you take it to an at-large vote and say, hey, should we change our election process? And then the voters say no, then that's been shown to prove that it's racially polarized because they don't want to give the minorities, you know, their own representation.
0: Give me an example of or one of the examples that people cite that where they think that having this disproportionate number of white board members m- might have made a difference in terms of actual school policy.
2: Okay. In in uh, West Contra Costa, there's been a lot of talk about the facilities and inequitable facilities. They have a $1.6 billion construction bond program, but they've spent millions of dollars upgrading El Cerrito High School, which has a $20 million football Be- beautiful stadium. Campus. A beautiful I've, campus. I've played Looks tennis like a, over there. Yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, the community uses their theater. That's how good the theater is. But then Richmond High and Kennedy High, which are both in Richmond, are are older facilities that don't have nearly the upgraded amenities that El Cerrito High School has.
0: So the the view there is not necessarily that these board members are racist, but that they may not have the same investment in other communities that they where they don't live or don't don't. Uh represent.
2: Right, and they are very much there for their constituents. Um, West Contra Costa is actually a very political area, and there's a lot of money that changes hands in these campaigns, and there are allegations that people are beholden to the people that are supporting them.
0: Okay, so what's the next step then in West Contra Costa?
2: Well, as I mentioned, it's two-pronged. So the board has to uh, create voting maps. So they'll hold five public hearings to look at how to divide the district up into equitable areas. And then they'll approve a map. And what the board wants to do is take that map to the voters in November and ask the voters, do you agree that we should switch to this type of election? As I said, the lawsuit wants to preempt that whole process. The lawsuit is um, hoping that the court will order the district to get this map ready Um, and to the county by July so that it could be in effect in November.
0: Wow, that seems like a steep hill to climb.
2: It does, and that's why the clock is really running, and it'll be interesting to see because if this doesn't go into effect in November, then it won't go into effect until 2020.
0: You know, it seems like there's so much going on in school districts that we're kind of focusing on, on school board elections, which just seems so far from the classroom.
2: It's interesting that you say that because some of the school board members were saying the very same thing at the board meeting. They said, you know, when are we gonna, going to get back to talking about teaching and learning?
0: Okay, well, Teresa Harrington, thanks for talking with us and keep us posted on how this unfolds.
2: I will. Thank you.
0: We're now going to go back to John Fensterwald, who's been waiting patiently while I talked with Teresa. John, I wanted to talk to you about another very important equity-related issue, and that has to do with teachers in low-income schools or schools serving low-income and largely students of color. And uh, the statistics show that there's a disproportionate number of inexperienced and potentially ineffective teachers in those schools even though there are many teachers doing fantastic work in those schools and very experienced ones That's right but this has been an ongoing issue in the state you've written about it where do we stand now with that in California
1: Well every state under the Every Student Succeeds Act the federal law must show how they're a plan how they're going to narrow the differences between the number of percentages of inexperienced and misassigned and ineffective teachers in low-income schools compared with other schools. And so the state board has approved a plan and all the data will be reported every year and it will be part of the local control and accountability plan. So in other words, there will be a public process so that people and
0: parents can see what these data are and what the district is going to do about it. So how did the state board define effectiveness or ineffective? an ineffective teacher. Yeah, I think the intent of Congress was that you deal with, call. if you're going to say ineffective,
1: it implies you evaluate some kind of performance or some kind of impact on students. It was left up to the states to define what that term, the federal government didn't do it for you. California and a number of states sort of sidestepped that issue, and so they defined it basically as a a teacher who doesn't have a credential, a short-term or emergency permit, or maybe they've been misassigned to a, a class to, for which they don't have the subject credentials. That's really not what Congress intended, but California struggled particularly with teacher evaluations for a number of years, and they haven't been able to change the current law, which is by all, all reckoning inadequate. And so there's a, just a dispute between teachers' unions and, and school boards as to what should be in a teacher evaluation, so the boards sidestep that issue.
0: Well, I could see it could work both ways, because you could have a teacher on a temporary credential who could be a fantastic teacher, do just do a terrific job. I, I've, I've heard stories a teacher might have had some particularly interested in biology even though they may not have a major in biology and it's just great absolutely that's uh, that's why it's important to have some kind of measurement of effectiveness but the, the state wouldn't want to do at that at the same time uh, the whole issue of evaluation of teachers has been highly controversial as you know i think the whole notion of trying to link teacher performance to student test scores that ship has sailed i know some states are trying to do that but that's not going to happen in california Yeah, I don't
1: think that that is the issue. I think there are other ways of measuring performance and effectiveness other than test scores. They just can't reach an agreement on doing that. And until they do, there really won't be a useful measure, perhaps. Some of the advocates said okay let's put that issue aside maybe there's some other measures that we can do such as teacher attendance or mobility in a school because that tells you the working conditions how How do you mean how do you mean mobility how long do teachers stay actually in that school and look at teacher attendance do they show up Do do a teacher survey so that you can measure are they getting the training that they need but the state board's view was, look, we don't collect that data right now, and so we can't put it in the plan. And so is this now a settled issue? This part of the Every Student Succeeds Act is settled because the board did approve this. There are lots of other aspects that
0: still are out, still hanging out there, and the board will take that up in April. Is there any prospect of somebody appealing the district's definition of effective teachers or ineffective teachers? Mm-hmm well not to the
1: federal government no in fact one of the things that's interesting is many states never put in their definitions they said we're going to deal with it later and and the uh, Betsy DeVos has approved many of those
0: plans so the larger issue of course is to really work at getting the most experienced teachers into the schools that where the kids need it the most yes i i think that's
1: true and that's why you can't really say in California that you're committed to equity if you really don't deal with the teacher piece because having a qualified, experienced, and effective teacher is critical if you're going to improve low performing schools.
0: And in the era of local control, it's really up to the local school districts to take care of this and to really make an effort to get more equality or equitable distribution of their excellent teachers. That's right. Under the state plan,
1: Districts must come up with actions. They must say, this is what we will do. The state has the ability to make suggestions and send it back if they don't feel that they're really addressing anything. But it is under local control, a district matter. Talking about the federal government, the Congress passed the federal budget, and we didn't have the federal government shut down. That in itself was newsworthy, but... We haven't heard much about what's in it for education. You've, you've taken a look.
0: Well, that's true. And actually, this happened a couple of weeks ago, so I don't want any of our listeners thinking that we somehow are you know, out of date. But we thought we should take a look, slightly closer look at this because, in fact, the federal budget, at least as far as education goes, and many other areas, that we're, that's what we're focusing on, there was a huge defeat for Donald Trump because he wanted to slash the federal education budget to like $59.9 billion. That was going to be like a $7.1 billion cut. Well, in fact, the Congress approved and President Trump signed a $70.9 billion budget. That was a $3.9 billion increase. So, uh, really, a, a repudiation really of uh, Trump's education agenda for many of many people in California who are against the school choice notion of giving some kind of vouchers or taxpayer support of some kind to uh, to underwrite tuition at private schools Trump had a plan, a $250 million plan to fund some kinds of programs, plus diverting $1.1 billion of Title I funds that would would have to be spent on some kind of unspecified school choice program. Not in the budget at all. It was encouraging. Congress, in a bipartisan way, passed the Every
1: Student Succeeds Act with Title I and teacher grants and Title II that Trump wanted to end. And it was encouraging that Congress stood up and said, wait a minute, you know, we're, we stand for this money and we think it's important.
0: Also, what happened was on at, at the higher ed level, Pell Grants actually went up. The students would, would be getting a little more of that. And um, at the other end uh, of the education spectrum, this has actually got very little... A little attention was uh, a massive increase in the child development block grant, $2.4 billion increase. And uh, that could mean that 20 to 30,000 more kids in California could get access to child care. Yeah, very encouraging.
1: Let me add a, a note, though, that uh, of course all of this occurred at the same time there's a huge expansion in the military budget. So the bottom line is there's a huge increase in the federal debt.
0: This was a so called compromise with the Democrats. Democrats Gave some, gave certain things. They declared defeat weeks ago on the whole DACA issue, which is not in the bill at all. But they were able to get some of these uh, priorities in into the bill. Yeah, very encouraging. John, I think what this actually shows is that often people are expecting the worst when it comes to education funding and this attack on public education. That we have been seeing from President Trump and Betsy DeVos. But actually, most of what they have been trying to do has not yet happened. They still have several more years to go, so a lot can happen. But uh, it, it does go to show that conditions in Congress could actually prevent a lot of these things from happening.
1: Yeah, it's been on president's rhetorical agenda, but actually not a priority for all these changes. So for now, things are status quo.
0: Well, that just about wraps it up for this week in California education. Look at EdSource this coming week. We have some really interesting stories coming up, one on chronic absenteeism in continuation high schools, which really have not gotten very much attention at all in the whole reform discussion in California. We'll also be looking at lead in water in schools, uh, an issue that kind of surprisingly has emerged in the last uh, few months. Good stories, and we'll be here to talk about them. I want to thank our sponsor, the SD Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Thank you, John, for joining us. Thank you, Louis. And thanks to you, our listeners. See you next week.